Welcome to the Orange Crest Community Church Podcast. Our hope is that this weekly podcast provides both encouragement and challenge as you move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you today. I'm still getting used to the virtual introductions, so it's good to, to be with you today. It was back in uh, April, the four of us pastors got together, and here's a I'll show you a picture of the meeting. We, we actually met in OCC's offices here in Riverside, and we began to talk about uh, what it would look like to do a message series where we kind of went on the road and traveled to each other's churches. So I think Josh may have, if you were here several weeks ago when he introduced this series, he may have shown you this picture. So today we're all in uh, different churches, and this, this is the third Sunday of the tour. Next Sunday, Josh will be back, and we'll all be back in our churches to wrap this message series up. But today, Josh is at CIV in Diamond Bar. And uh, Alex Barrett is speaking at Seabreeze, where I normally am. And then Randy Lanthrop is at Church in the Valley in Alhambra. And the purpose behind this is we wanted to give you guys a, a little more of a sense of the important teaming that we do together as churches. Uh, most of you probably only know about what happens in this church. And we wanted to give you a little taste of the fact that we're part of something bigger uh, than just our individual churches. So I wanted to show you just a quick little video of what's, uh, what it looks like on a typical Sunday morning at Seabreeze. So this is from our website, but let's just take a look at this real quick, and then I'll, I'll jump back in. That's what it looks like on Sunday morning. You know, when I moved here in 1990 with my wife and kids, I didn't even know what a sea breeze was. And uh, then I visited a good friend of mine who's a professor at uh, Cal Baptist. I think it was in August. And I got in my car in Huntington Beach, and uh, I drove out here, and I parked in the parking lot and opened the door. And I just, I could not, I had no idea there was such a difference in temperature. So that's when I discovered, oh, that's what a sea breeze does. So very grateful for the sea breeze, both the church and the breeze that comes off the ocean. But a little bit about me personally. I, I um, never intended uh, to be a pastor. I was in business, actually, uh, in advertising. was the president of a kind of a medium-sized advertising agency. But back when I was a junior in college, um, I had finally nailed down personally that uh, the Bible really was, was true. I'd spent a couple of years... I uh, had a list of questions and was working through questions and did a lot of research, and I, I nailed down that I was convinced the Bible really was from God. And I also was very convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But the church, I, I wasn't really impressed with the church. I was really critical of the church uh, when I was in college. And, and then I was reading through the New Testament and came across the places where the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And I wasn't married at the time. But I knew enough about marriage to know that if I was going to be critical of a man's wife, I was going to be having problems with the man. 
And what, what occurred to me at that point is Jesus was not pleased with my critical attitude towards his bride. And I had a very strong thought uh, that changed my life, that, that popped into my mind. It wasn't an audible voice, but very, very strong thought. And it went like this. Stop criticizing the church and start helping. And so I did. I just tried to figure out how to help. And it didn't take me very long before I figured out it's just a whole lot easier to criticize something than it is to actually build and help something grow. And so I discovered that I really didn't have any idea about how to really help the church grow in such a way that it would please Jesus. And so I began praying that God would help me find a, a church, a place where I could learn. And I prayed for two years, not every day, but a lot of days. And I just asked God to help me find a place. And then after two years, I heard about this church in Fort Worth, Texas, led by a man by the name of Harold Bullock. And it intrigued me so much that I decided to to visit this church. I was living in Michigan at the time, churches in Texas, made my way there, spent two weeks just kind of checking things out. And at the end of two weeks, I knew this was the answer to my prayer. So I packed up everything I owned, which wasn't a whole lot back then, in my little Honda Civic and moved from Michigan to Texas. Didn't have a job, just knew this is where I needed to be. And uh, I lived there for eight years, was a part of that church for eight years. And uh, learned a tremendous amount. was deeply impacted by Harold and the other people uh, at that church. And one of the things that I've discovered uh, now since I've been a pastor for about 28 years is most pastors lead their churches pretty much alone. Now, they're not alone in their churches. There's lots of people. But as pastors, they're, they're pretty alone. And I've discovered that for me, I'm not smart enough to pull that off. And I'm definitely not strong enough to pull that off. For me, many times, it's been something that either Harold said or Randy said or Josh or Alex or some of the other pastors have said that have really helped me kind of get back on track and particularly to hang in there when things get tough. I remember one time several years ago when we were going through a rough spot as a church and I just wanted to quit. I just wanted to go do something else. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have to call Harold and tell him I'm quitting, and I'm going to have to call Randy and tell him I'm quitting. I'm going to have to call Josh and tell him I'm quitting. And then I realized, I can't quit. I I can't bail on these guys and our friendship. And I know that doesn't sound like a very noble reason to stay, but I stayed because of the larger group of churches that we were a part of at that point. And I'm so glad that I didn't bail at that point. God really did some neat things through that time in our church. So before I jump into the message, I just wanted to give you a little window into who I am and why this is so important to me. And I wanted to thank you guys for this church. Uh, You may think that this church has nothing to do with any other church. This is just a separate church. But as you guys have followed Josh and the leaders of this church and, and you've built this church, unknowingly maybe, you have been helping churches like the one I lead, people that you may never meet. Uh, So I just want to thank you for building this church and being a part of the team of churches that we work together with. We, we couldn't accomplish what we're doing uh, without us teaming together as churches. Now, it takes a team to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave us to accomplish. Probably the best summary statement of our mission as Christ followers is found in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. If you've been around church for a while, you're very familiar with these verses. But here's what it says. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
So the target of growth, the growth target is to obey everything Jesus commanded. Now, what that means is every one of us then has work to do. I've yet to meet anyone that said, you know, I think it was last Thursday I did the last thing that Jesus commanded, and pretty, I pretty much nailed it now. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something else to do because I've got the Christian thing pretty much down. Nobody, honestly, would ever say that. We've all got growth to do. We've all got work to do. And the question I want to address this morning is, how do we do that? How do we get traction in this mission of growing and learning how to do everything Jesus commanded? We're all short of that, but how do we move the needle that direction? Well, the word that probably pops out to us first in what Jesus said is the word teaching. We have to be taught how to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And when we think of the word teaching, we, we immediately think of, of a classroom, because that's what most teaching uh, is done in a classroom environment, a classroom like this. And we think, well, we, we, need, to, we need to learn stuff. We need, we need to go to class, and we need to be taught how to obey what Jesus said. But Jesus called the ones being taught not students, but disciples. And a disciple is very different than a student. A disciple looks like this. This is what a group of disciples looks like. These are individuals that are being apprenticed to be electricians. It looks like they've got junction boxes and they're learning how to wire something that electricians know how to do. And so the modern word for disciple is apprentice. We don't use the word disciple much anymore. And so apprentice is kind of the functional equivalent of what it means to be a disciple. Now, for most of human history, this is how you learn stuff. You were apprenticed under what we now call a journeyman. A journeyman is someone who simply is farther ahead of you in the journey. They, they know some things that you don't know yet, and because they've traveled ahead of you, they, they can show you some of the next steps and, and bring you along as apprentice, and then you can do that to people behind you. But with the start of the Industrial Revolution uh, in modern culture, the learning shifted from an apprentice-based model to an academic-based model. And so, so now most of us, I've never been an apprentice of anything. I've been a student for a bunch of years in school, but I've never been an apprentice under a journeyman. So most of us grow up as students, not as apprentices. Now, there still are areas where we have apprenticeships. Uh, the trades have apprenticeship. Uh, the medical community has an apprenticeship. You have to go to residency after you graduate. It's not enough just to pass the exams. You've got to learn how to do that because if someone is wiring your house or doing surgery on your body, you want to know that they have more knowledge than just on a test. You want to know that they've done this and people haven't died and houses haven't burned down, so we'll have them rewire my house and do surgery on me. But for the most part, the vast majority of us are students in an academic environment, not apprentices in a journeyman environment. And so we learn and we grow and we eventually graduate and get degrees that tell everyone how much we know based on primarily reading, listening, and passing tests. And this approach to learning, this shift has really affected the way the church thinks that we grow. Most people in the church now think that we grow by learning stuff. And so the, the path to growth is you just have to read the Bible and learn more and more of what it says. And the thinking is that the knowledge of the Bible will produce Christian character. 
Though the focus is primarily on telling people what to do, not so much showing them how to do it. And when it comes to those of us who lead in the church as pastors, we are asked primarily to do really well at this, standing in front of a group of people and teaching. That's primarily, in most churches, how the pastors are evaluated. We need to do a really, really good message. And that's more the concern than whether or not we're leading our churches to develop more and more people who are getting traction and growth and are able to help other people get traction and growth. That's not so much a concern, generally. That'd be nice if that happens, but what must happen is we must speak well in a situation like this. I mean, it's important that we do, but that's the primary focus because we come from an academic framework, not so much a discipling or apprenticeship framework. And so Christians who want to grow will often say things like, I really want um, a more in-depth Bible study. Or the phrase I've often heard as a pastor is, I really wish you taught more in-depth. And what they mean by that is I've asked them, well, what do you mean by in-depth? They don't mean the really, really difficult things Jesus taught, like how to love your enemy. That's not hard to understand. That's really hard to do. That's graduate-level Christianity. But they're not talking about that. They're talking about the, the intellectually difficult parts of the Bible that they want to kind of dive deep into the weeds on. I mean, most of the Bible is pretty straightforward. You're going to read a whole lot more that is difficult to do before you're going to run across stuff that's difficult to understand. But now what people mean by depth is I really want to figure out, say, the book of Leviticus. I wish you did a message series on that. So so that's kind of the idea of, of how things have shifted. But you see, as Christians, we grow and we advance not by knowing more, but by obeying more. We advance in obedience, not in knowledge. Now, we do need to know stuff in order to do stuff, but the knowledge itself doesn't mean we've grown at all. In fact, simply knowing is not growing. It's doing that translates into growing. And the reason this is so important is because the tests occur in life, not on paper. This is why discipling or apprenticing in growth is so important. I mean, if you're married, you can't just take a test uh, every quarter on marriage and have your marriage grow. Like, hey, I got an A on the test. Why are you upset with me? No, marriage is real. And same thing with parenting. You can't just pass an annual, you know, parenting test on how to parent. You need to actually figure out how do we deal with this problem? What do we say to our child or how do we address this issue? The tests are in real life. They're not on paper. They're not in theory. And this kind of growth takes a team. You can't do this by yourself. You, You can study and you can learn. And you can take tests all by yourself. You can do that all that stuff online now. But you can't be apprenticed. You can't be discipled all by yourself. In fact, it requires an entire church in order for this to happen. The church is essential to growth. We have to team together if we're really going to grow. Jesus, in Matthew 18, tells us why this is true. There's two sections in Matthew 18, one after another. And he describes the two essential elements of growth that mean that the church is necessary if we're going to grow. All on our own, we we can learn, but we can't really grow. We need these two elements. In Matthew 18, the the passage we're going to look through, 
This is the second and final time Jesus uses the word church. The first time, a couple chapters earlier, Jesus had talked about that the church is what he came to set up. In this, he talked about how the church is going to impact us making traction and growth. So we're going to look at the two key growth elements. I'm going to spend a little more time on the first one and a little less on the second. Because the first one is very important to kind of get down as a foundation idea. So let's look at these in turn. The first element of growth is when we team together, life gets more real. Life gets more real. Until we team together, it's just ideas. When we team together, now it's real. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. By the way, let me warn you, it's going to sound a little shocking, so don't get scared. I'll explain this uh, hopefully in a way that will, will make sense to you. But it's a pretty shocking passage that Jesus says. Here's what he says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow. Told you that was scary. I mean, that's heavy-sounding stuff, right? I mean, are we really supposed to do this? But this is not talking about showing up at some large church meeting like this and being dragged up on stage and being confronted about all the sin in your life. That's not at all what this is saying. I mean, who would ever be able to do something like this in your life personally? It would only be someone who's really close to you. Someone that you had, as Jesus says, a brother or sister-like relationship to. Someone that really knows you and really cares about you. That's that's the kind of relationship that would be required for this to happen. You see, the problem is you and I, we have patterns of sin, deep ruts that often we learned early on in life. And in order for those ruts to, to be changed, we, we need two key things to happen. We need more than this, but to get the ball rolling, we need these two things first. First of all, we need to be aware of what needs to change. If, we don't, if we're not aware of the ruts, if we're not aware of the patterns, There's no way we're going to change. The second thing we need is we need to want to change. We need to be motivated. If we're aware, but we think, nah, I'm not going to do that, well, then we're not going to change. And all by ourselves, we tend to remain pretty unaware of ourselves and pretty unmotivated to change. All by ourselves, inside our own heads. We're unaware and we're unmotivated to change. You know, when I was single, I... um, I knew I wasn't perfect. I, I knew I had some stuff to work on. But I generally, as I thought about myself, I, I thought, you know, I'm a, you know, all things considered, I'm a pretty decent guy. And then I got married. And I discovered I'm not near as decent as I thought I was. Now, it wasn't that my wife was super critical. It was just in the context of that close relationship, some stuff kind of oozed out of me that wasn't necessarily that impressive. Stuff that I had never seen before. Now, of course, I thought the problem was my wife. It was oozing out of me. And then, to take it to another level, we had children. And I discovered, oh, there's all kinds of stuff now that's oozing out of me and the pressure of of parenting. And, And this is the way close relationships are. All by yourself, you can think of yourself however you want. But when you get in a relationship, all right, now the real you comes out. Under pressure, stuff is squeezed out. 
That's why we need close relationships in order for that to happen. You see, what happened in marriage and then in parenting is my life suddenly had, I call it a drop cloth, a relational drop cloth. You know, you've probably done some painting. Here's a picture of a ladder and a drop cloth. The purpose of a drop cloth is when you do your painting, uh, you know, if you drip paint, you've got something to protect, you know, the floor, whatever, you know, furniture that you're trying to, you know, keep from getting messed up. And a relational drop cloth is a, a confined space, a relationship where your sin kind of drips out on, but it's, it's in a safe environment. It, it's not going to do long-term damage because the person really cares about you. And so although I knew that I was sinful, I knew that I had things to change in my life, that, I knew that in theory. But then when I got married, my, my sin would, would drip on my wife. And I could see it. I could see its impact on her. And then I could see the impact on my kids. And I, it was safe because they loved me, but I, I wanted to change more than I ever had before. Now, most relationships are kind of like painting without a drop cloth. One mistake leaves a permanent mark, and the relationship may be over. They're, they're not safe. And so we need relational drop cloths. Because on our own, we're unaware of what needs to change, and we're unmotivated. The church is designed to be a relational drop cloth, a place where people can really get to know each other. This takes time. This doesn't just happen instantly. It takes investment. But a place where, where people can work together and, and get to know each other and really care about each other enough. Because in order for our sin to be exposed in a safe environment, we need to be in a relationship with people that know us, and care about us. They, they know us, which means we might, we might be fine just wallowing in our own patterns and mess all by ourselves, but they're not because they're hurt by us and they really care about us. And therefore, we're motivated to change. But that can occur in a large gathering like this. I mean, this is a teaching environment. You're sitting here listening and I'm speaking. I'm the teacher. You're the students. And the kind of things that Jesus is talking about here doesn't happen in this context. That requires a smaller gathering, a smaller, you know, context where relationships can be developed. And the reason it can't be developed here is because sitting right here, no one's hurting anyone else. I mean, everyone, you guys are behaving great. You're paying attention. You're not, you know, poking each other. You're not irritating each other. I mean, maybe you had a fight on the way here if you're married and you're kind of, doing in that a little bit, but for the most part, you guys look great. You're not irritating me. I hope I'm not irritating you. So nothing on the inside is kind of mm, coming out because we're all doing good. We're all in our best behavior. That, that's what happens in a large gathering. That's appropriate. But what that means is that everything that I say this morning and everything that Josh says when he speaks on Sundays is heard as a theory. It's true, but it's true in theory because we're not, we're not dealing with reality. I mean, we're talking about reality, but we're not facing or dealing with reality. For example, I could talk this morning about gossip, and I could talk about how damaging gossip is and how it separates friends and how it does tremendous damage to people in relationships. But, and and you, all you have to do as I'm talking about gossip is inside go, you nod yes, that's true, or... Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. You just have to agree or disagree with whatever's said here on Sunday morning. 
But all of the thoughts are thoughts in theory. You don't have to do anything about God. If that's a pattern for you, you might even sit here and be really convicted and say, you know what, I've got to change. I've got to stop gossiping about people. But if it's a deep pattern, you could hear a great message about gossip and go to lunch and start gossiping. Because that's, that's just your pattern. That's your right. You just fall right into it, even though you don't want to. So how would something like that become real? Well, let's say you and I were in a, in a close relationship. I knew you, and you knew me. And you gossiped about me. Okay, now I'm upset. And what that means for you is gossip is now real. Someone who loves you, someone who knows you, is upset because you've hurt them. Now we're talking on a different level. We're not talking about, yeah, gossip is wrong, we shouldn't do it. We're talking about someone I care is hurting because of something I did. Now I'm aware and I'm really motivated. What can I do? How can I begin to change this? So everything that happens on Sunday morning is is very helpful, but it's theory talk. Reality occurs when we rub shoulders and we work together and we develop close relationships and the stuff kind of oozes out and spills on people. So how does this work in reality? Well, for the most part, the power to grow occurs when we pick a specific church. This is why if you just kind of hop around churches and don't really connect to any one church, there's no way you're going to form these kinds of relationships. You have to pick one. If it's not this one, fine, pick one that you can be admitted to. It looks like there's some people that have some sense that you could learn from. You pick a church, and then you take the time to invest in that church and in the people in that church. You can't invest in everyone, but pick a team. I mean, this morning when I came here, there's all kinds of teams of people doing all kinds of stuff. If you're on a team, you're going to get to know some people over time. If you join one of the small groups, you're going to get to know some people over time. You're going to develop, as you invest in those relationships, you're going to develop brother and sister level relationships. And then, just as time goes on and their sin or your sin just kind of drips on each other, well, now, now you've got something to real talk, real to talk about. You see, the investment is worth it because now the sin problems are dripping on someone who really cares about you. They're not going to run. They really, they really care about you. It's a safe environment. It's, as Jesus said, this is just between the two of you. That's where it begins. It's just between you and the person where the, the conflict has occurred. Just between the two of you. Now, this go and point out your fault thing that Jesus is talking about, that occurs all the time. That occurs every week for us. You know what that is? That's relational conflicts. I mean, if you're working anywhere, eventually someone's going to get upset with you. And they're going to say something. They're going to point out your fault. But you know what? Most of those are not going to be safe because they're not going to go to your face and talk to you about it. What do people do when they're upset with you? They go behind your back and talk about you. It's called office politics in a work environment. So when you, when you talk about someone behind their back, suddenly it's not safe. And also, it's not real. Because when someone talks about you behind your back, you know what happens? They retain full editing rights to the story. They can tell the story any way they want. Because you're not there to say, no, I didn't say that. Or don't you remember you said this and then I said that? They can tell it any way they want. And so what that means is people behind the back, they tend to leave out anything wrong they might have done and feature all of the wrong that you did do. 
They may come to wrong conclusions. And there's no way to really get at what is going on here, what the truth is. Face-to-face is the only way to keep things real. Because when it's just the two of you, you have to consider what they're saying, and they have to consider what you're saying. It's the best chance of all at getting at what's actually going on here. What is really happening? What's the truth? Well, what if the two of you can't make any progress? Well, for most people, that's where things get stuck. And that's really the challenge in marriage. You know, your, your wife says, this was really wrong what you did. And you say, I don't think it was. And she says, I think it was. And you say, I don't think it was. And, well, now we're stuck. I don't know if you realize this, but married people don't always agree on stuff. So it could be a good, loving relationship, but the two of you can't figure out what's going on. You're not sure what is actually happening. If you're not a part of a, a church or a larger context with people that have some sense and may be able to help you, then, well, then you're stuck. And most marriages, they just, they really kind of go around the same issues for decades sometimes because they're stuck. They can't get outside of their, their little conflicts. So the next thing you do in a church, you're in a larger context than just the two of you. So, as Jesus said, the next thing you do, but if they will not listen, Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, we read that and we hear, what is this, piling on? But that's not the purpose behind the two or three others. You're not getting two or three other people, you know, who will agree with you so that you can hammer the other person. That's not the purpose. What does Jesus say the purpose is? To establish the matter. What is that? The matter is what's wrong. Establish. What does the word establish mean? It means to make something firm. The idea is to nail down what is really going on. What's happening here? Who's at fault? What's the problem? You know, so the idea is you need to get help from some other people in figuring out. The two of you can't figure out what's really going on here. I mean, maybe the one who brought the problem up is completely off base. Or maybe the one who was confronted on the problem, they just need to hear it from more than one person. And as two or three other people come around and they listen to the issues and they weigh in and they say, yeah, I really think this is what's going on. Well, that in most cases, that would if a person is really serious about growth. That's all they need to hear. It's like, oh, wow, I I didn't see this about myself. But, you know, the three of you see it the same way. I I really have to consider that. Or maybe the others say, you know what, no, you're off, you're off base. This really isn't a problem. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm just being too sensitive then. I, I didn't realize. But you're trying to figure out what's really going on here to establish the matter. But what if the matter is confirmed by two or three others and the person still refuses to listen and take it seriously? Well, what do you do then? Well, you tell it to the church. Now, that is not standing up in public and shaming the person. What this is basically saying is you go up line into the church leadership. You need more help to figure out what, what's really, are, there, are the three or four of us off base here? Or, or is this really what's going on? But if you go up line and the church leadership who's, who's journeyed a little further than you, they've got a little more experience than you, they weigh in and they say, you know what? we confirm what this person first said and what these two or three others also see, you know what that most likely means? This is really what's happening. We have now arrived at not just the theory of what's going on, but what's really going on. This is a tremendous gift to be able to figure out what's really happening. But what if the person still says, you know what? 
I don't, I don't, I don't agree. I'm not going to listen to this. Well, it says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, well, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow. That sounds awful. I mean, we don't know how would you treat a tax collector because taxes are mostly collected online or in the mail now. So I, I don't know what I'd do with a tax collector if I met one. So I don't know how you treat that now. But in Jesus' day, tax collectors, boy, they were... They had used Rome's power to enrich themselves and impoverish their neighbors, and so they were they were kind of they were not treated well. And pagans. Well, how are you supposed to treat a tax collector and a pagan? Well, if you're a follower of Christ, you have to look at how did Jesus treat them? You know how Jesus treated tax collectors and pagans? He loved them. They were the focus of most of his time here on earth. In fact, that was one of the key irritations of the religious leaders against Jesus. Is he, he fills up his social calendar at tax collector parties. And hanging out with pagans. And Jesus said, well, these are the people who need help. You know what it means to be a pagan? We think pagan, we think, oh my goodness, one of those two or three awful people. Now the word pagan simply means without God. That's really what's true of most people now. When it comes to making decisions, almost nobody factors God in in making those decisions. It's, what, what's this going to impact me financially? Uh, do I want to do this? What's my passion? Whatever set of questions. But it's hardly ever, what, what might God think about this? Or what does God's word have to say? Are there any principles to apply as I make this decision? For most people, that's just not even on the radar. Because they're not trying to learn how to obey everything Jesus commanded. They're just trying to figure out how to navigate life and get as much as they can to be happy. So they're, they're pagans. Without God, they're, they're not making decisions that are God-based. And those people need to be loved. And, you know, I treat all of my neighbors as pagans. That doesn't mean I treat them poorly. That means I don't expect them to take what Jesus said seriously. I look at them, make decisions, and I don't just shake my head and think, what's wrong with them? Like, well, of course they would make that decision. Jesus just isn't a factor for them. So I pray for them, and I love them in the hope that one day they might come to understand that they really need to to build a good life. They need to figure out what Jesus said and figure out how to do that. But until then, I'm going to treat them like a pagan. I'm going to love them and realize, of course, they're not serious about Christian growth. They're not Christians. And so when someone goes through this, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not a Christian, but at least what it means at this point is, They're not really serious about growth. So, oh, now that I know that, okay, then we'll just leave you to yourself. We're not going to bug you. We're not going to hassle you. You're not serious about growing. We're not going to, like, put a label on you. We're just going to understand this is is where this person is, and we're going to love them where they're at. Now, if you're new, if you're getting nervous about this, let me assure you that none of this can happen apart from your, your decision. None of this can happen unless people take the time to really know each other well and really love each other. So this is your choice. I mean, you can, I know Josh, I mean, you can attend OCC for decades and hang out on Sundays and help in some ways and never really kind of invest in the way where people are really going to get to know you. And this will never happen in your life. That's fine. You can do that. No one's going to pressure you to do anything different. But what I'm saying is that if you really want to grow, If you really want to know what's true of you and get motivated to really grow, you're going to have to step beyond this kind of gathering, the Sunday morning gathering, to 
to join some teams and to get involved in small groups and maybe go on some mission trips and to the point where mm, some of the ugh may ooze out of you. And people who really care about you might help you with that. If you're not interested in that, just hang out here. Don't step beyond this. But you're not going to grow. You're not going to make progress in learning how to obey what Jesus taught. You see, attending a church on Sunday is kind of like visiting Italy. I don't know if you've ever visited Italy. My wife and I did back in 95 for three weeks. You know, you visit Italy, and you encounter a very different culture. I mean, they think very differently than we do. And they have a very different set of values than we do. I mean, I was shocked at how, how important food is to them. I mean, they are nuts about food in Italy. I mean, the evening meal is like this three-hour extravaganza. I'm like, how does anybody get any work done around here? We're, all, we're always heading towards a meal or cleaning up from a meal. So for them, food is whew, way up there. But after visiting for three weeks, we came back. didn't really change us that much. I mean, we, we cooked Italian for a while, but then eventually we kind of got back into American food. And now, you know, all these years later, there, there's no Italian about us. We're just basic American people now because we just visited for three weeks. But if you wanted to be changed by the Italian culture, you know what you have to do? You have to do more than visit. You'd have to move in with an Italian family for a long period of time. And then their culture would begin to shape you. This is what happens in church life. If you visit on Sunday, you're just visiting Italy. You, you know, you're going to encounter some different perspectives. It's like, huh, that's not the way I think about life. That's very different what the Bible says. You'll encounter some different values. Huh, so this is more important than this? Well, in my mind, this is more important. Huh, aren't those... Christian's interesting. And, and you'll encounter some different ideas. But it's not going to change you. Even if you want it to change you, you're going to have to get in the trenches of relationships with some people. Some people that really get to know you over time. You get to know them, and they can speak into your life, and you can speak into their life. And that takes time. It takes time, first of all, to figure out who can I trust. I, I wouldn't recommend you just... Kind of walk up to someone and say, here's everything, here every mess about me. That's not how relationships work. That takes time. So when we team together, life gets more real. The second element, we'll go through this quickly. When we team together, God gets more involved. This is the other big advantage of teaming. This is the next thing Jesus says in Matthew 18. We tend to read it as a separate idea, but it's connected to what he just said. Here's what he said. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three, there it is again, two or three, come together in my name, there I am with them. Wow, can that really be true? I mean, it seems like what this is saying is if you need something to get done, all you have to do is find one other person, two of you together, to agree in prayer, and it's just going to happen. Well, this sounds like the magic wand I've been looking for. You know, I, I've got a financial problem. I just need to find at least one other person. If I can get two more, then better. We'll kind of wave the wand over that in prayer, and boom, financial problem solved. My kids aren't behaving. I just get two or three people. Boom, they start behaving. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, let me ask you this. If you think through it logically, then what happens if Two or three people are gathering together, and they're praying about the exact opposite outcome. Does one cancel out the other? 
I mean, I was in Texas several weeks ago during the World Series, and a bunch of people in Texas were praying that Houston would win the World Series. A bunch of people here were praying the Dodgers would win the World Series. Houston won. Why? More people praying in Texas than here? Well, yeah, probably. <laughs> but is that why? Is that why Houston won? Well, that, that's not what this thing is. We're, we're so self-warned, we think, oh, I've found... The key to winning the lottery, I just need to get two or three people together to agree that I need the lottery, and then God's going to deliver the lottery. But this, he's not talking about a blank check from heaven, how to get whatever you want. You know, this is the, the key to getting God, you know, the vending machine in heaven, to deliver whatever you want. That, that's not what this is saying. This teaming together of two or more in prayer is a continuation of the teaming of two or more to address sin. We need God's help to change. It's not enough to be in close relationships. It's not enough just to have a few other people really help us identify. We need God to help us. And when these two or three people who really care about you are also gathering together with you and praying for you, God says, all right, now you're going to see some stuff. Now I'm going to show up. Well, I thought God was everywhere. Oh, he is. But what he's saying is, You're going to see me show up in ways you could never have imagined without this. You're going to see some growth. You're going to see some things happen in your life that's just going to blow your mind over time. You see, this this teaming, God says, I'm there with you. He's always there with us, but you'll see me act, is what he's saying, in a unique way. But why two or more? It's the same thing that was said with dealing with sin. You see, two or more not only means this is when life becomes more real, it also means this is when God becomes more real to us. Now, multiple witnesses are used. We use multiple witnesses to confirm the reality of what we're seeing. Now, recently, I was, I was down at the beach, and I thought I saw a pot of dolphins moving by, which is not unusual in Huntington Beach. But you see a pot of dolphins, and it may or may not be. I mean, I've been fooled before, and it's just floating kelp bobbing in the surf. And so I wasn't sure, so what did I do? I turned to the person next to me and said, are those dolphins over there? And they looked for a while and I said, yes, they are dolphins. You know what that did to me? That confirmed reality. I'm not hallucinating. Those are, in fact, dolphins. If the person said, I don't see anything, it's like, okay, something wrong with me. I'm not perceiving reality. That, that's, that's what two or three witnesses do. It, 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 it confirms what reality is. When we gather together, even in a large group like this, or two or three, and we, we gather together for the purpose of trying to figure out what, what God wants us to do, what we're really doing is we're saying, do you see God? Is God real to you? Yes. Okay. Now I'm not crazy. I'm not hallucinating. This, this God stuff is real, right? Because you're seeing it, and I'm seeing it, and they're seeing it. You know, when we gather to pray or to sing or to hear God's word, it's because we think that God is real. I mean, that's why you're here today. I mean, even if you're not convinced yet, you're at least curious. You're at least wondering, maybe this stuff is real. I mean, why else would you be here? It's a beautiful day. Go do something else. But we all are here together before the God that we cannot see. And what we're really doing in this room is we're saying, You can see it too, right? You think this is real too, right? Right. You see, the way our weeks go is 
as we move through our weeks and stuff we pray for doesn't immediately happen. Some stuff we've been praying for years hasn't happened yet. And we work with, with people maybe who don't think God is real and, and the week gets really tough. And by the time we get to the end of the week, we've got our doubts. Now, if we were asked on a test, do you think God is real? Oh, yeah, I know the answer. He's real. But in our hearts, we're kind of, is he real? And then we come into a room like this, and we begin to sing. Which, by the way, this is why I recommend our church. Get here early enough to sing. This is not just the preamble for the main attraction. We get together to sing. Who are we singing to? Not Cody. I mean, he's singing too. Who are we singing to? The God that we cannot see. Why are we doing this? What happens? We get together and we start singing and we look around and they're singing. We look up on stage. They're singing. You know what we're really doing? We're saying, God's real, right? Real, right? Yes. Now, we know that mass hallucinations are possible. But if you've been here at all for any length of time, I mean, this is a sharp group. These are not the kind of people that are given a mass hallucination. I mean, just talk to them if you don't know. These are highly capable, intelligent people that they don't, they're not given a mass hallucination. So what happens when we gather is, is we're basically saying, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. This is real. And God says, when you do that, I'm going to show up in, in ways, in reality, that you wouldn't have seen without that. You continue to declare me to be real, you'll get to see me real. I'll show up. I'll grow you. I'll grow the people around you. If we're not teaming with God's people, I don't know how to say it another way, then this just isn't real to us. It's nice. It's theory. It's true. But it's not rubber meets the road real. And if it's not real to us, God will treat our prayers in the same spirit in which they're offered. Not that real. So if you really want God to grow you and you really want God to show up in your life and the lives of people around you in amazing ways over time, then the church is what you want to invest your life in. Gatherings like this and then stepping beyond this to the teams and the the groups where the real work of relationships is done. That's where the traction really takes place. I encourage you to do that. Everyone's in a different place. I encourage you to ask, what's the next step that you need to take? if you're really going to make traction and growing as a team. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Um, You know everything about us. We tend to be somewhat ignorant about ourselves. Sometimes that's intentional, but a lot of times we we just don't even see ourselves. But you have been so kind to us over the years. You've been patient with us. And I just pray that you would help everyone in this room to hear from you about what their next step is, what they need to do, how they need to take a step beyond um, where they're at in order to make some traction and grow. And God, I pray that as we gather together as the church, that um, you would show up in ways that we'd never imagined, that we personally would see change in areas that the ruts are really deep, and we'd see people change in ways that, well, we've given up hope on change. Only you can do this. And I pray that you would... uh, You would accomplish that. And now as we sing together to the one that we cannot see, we pray that you would do.
some things in the visible world that only you can do. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray you've been encouraged by the message and equipped to move forward in obedience to God's word. Join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast.